and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, controversy in the Trump administration. And Richard, so much controversy, in fact, that the controversy I thought we were going to lead with on this evening's podcast will come second. I will start you first with the news that is breaking uh, as of the evening that we're recording this, which is a news story that has come out in the New York Times reporting that President Trump asked Jim Comey while he was still serving as FBI director if he would be willing to shut down the federal investigation into Michael Flynn, the uh, national security advisor. We have to – of course, this is very new. This just came out. Assuming that the reporting in this story holds up, Richard, um, what are the possible consequences of a story well, like this? Well, this, the first and simplest ones are that the political consequences of making blunders like that are going to be enormous. The president is already on thin ice with respect to the impeachment issue, and there are many people who are quite willing to throw him down an ice hole so that he freezes to death. Uh, my own view about it is this confirms a judgment that I made some time ago that uh, this man is going to simply careen from one disaster to another, and we would be better off if he were to resign rather than to stay in office. But there's no point in pressing something which is not going to happen. Uh, but I do think that in the long run, uh, he runs a serious risk with disclosures like this of losing the support of his own pro- party, uh, finding the absolute outrage on the part of the Democrats, which will make it almost impossible for him to govern. And so I, I think that this is a serious issue. As to the legal type situation, it's one of these law school hypotheticals. I mean, he's talking openly with respect to this issue. He should not have addressed it. On the other hand, did he really think that this was a firm order or just a dabbling? Did he even realize that he was engaged in some activities that could be adversely construed? He's such a naive when it comes to dealing with diplomatic issues. You could actually make the incompetence excuse for him. I don't think in and of itself that this would ever warrant an impeachment charge given the way in which it was responded to. Uh, But I certainly would not want to be in the position of defending the president as having an astute tactical sense on these kinds of issues. And what's going to happen clearly is that one of these sort of hazy situations is going to have gone with a second and a third and then a fourth. And after a while, somebody's going to start saying, hey, there's a pattern in practice here. Maybe we could get him for the aggregate, even if any one of these things is not going to be serious. Uh, My view is there's no point in opining on this in a conclusive way today because there's something else that's going to come out tomorrow that's going to upset the balance. It seems to me that this is an administration that's reeling. And what we are seeing is that the president and his utter lack of experience in dealing with difficult political situation keeps getting himself deeper and deeper. His own party will not defend him, I think, for much longer, and the opposition will have a field day with him. Uh, So who knows about impeachment, but I think his political position now is, to put it mildly, highly precarious. So to that point, the other controversy that I mentioned earlier – what a news cycle we're in right right now. Yesterday, this blockbuster story appears in the Washington Post claiming that uh, in a meeting last week with the Russian foreign minister and the Russian ambassador to the U.S., the president divulged highly classified information, code word level, which is as high as it goes, about an intelligence source that we have working on ISIS. And and to be clear, I mean none of the actual reporting on this suggests that he did this on – purpose, but rather he just sort of got carried away boasting about the quality of the intelligence that he receives. 
H.R. McMaster, President's National Security Advisor, has denied this, although a lot of people have noted that the statement that McMaster gave avoided directly addressing some of the claims in the Post story. Before we get into the weeds here, Richard, let me just start with your initial reaction to this report that came out from the Washington Post. Well, I think the first reaction I have is at least some fraction of it is true because the president has never been able to hold his tongue under these difficult circumstances. The way the story was, as I read it 10 minutes ago, was that the information that he revealed had been obtained from the Israelis who had provided it to the United States under a guarantee of strict confidence. Uh, so what happens is that at the very least he compromises delicate relationships in the Middle East and perhaps our most important intelligence sharing. So it's a lose no matter what happens. As to McMaster, I think this is a man of unimpeachable integrity. He spends his too much time around Trump. The taint is going to start to reach him as well because he's going to have to be making evasive apologies or statements that seem to strain credibility. I can't believe that you would say that the statement, uh, it is completely appropriate for him to do this if it's an inadvertent slip that compromises one of our essential allies. It seems to me that at the very least it's a blunder. Now, is this an impeachable offense to go back to our favorite inquiry? I think the answer to that question is no. I think the president probably has it within his powers to figure out which of these various intelligent things he's going to preserve and which one's not. Uh, but this doesn't excuse what I regard as mind-numbing stupidity with respect to the way in which this thing operates. It's just demoralizing to have one story like this after another, knowing, in effect, that the last story is not the last story because there's another story that's coming up. So I think in the end it's just another shot below the waterline for the S says Trump. And if he's not very careful, this boat will sink below the waves. So since you've actually broached the topic of impeachment a couple times, we can even just put Trump to one side for a moment, just because people are starting to talk about this and people are starting to invoke uh, high crimes and misdemeanors. The, the phrase in the Constitution that is – well, it's one of the predicates for presidential impeachment. People don't usually mention treason and bribery, but those are in the text too. Um, so I'm just curious because this is an exercise that we engage in, thankfully, so rarely, uh, about that standard. High crimes and misdemeanors to the modern ear sounds like opposite ends of the spectrum. Do, do we have a good sense of what the Founding Fathers meant by that? Oh, well, we actually do. I mean, I check my most reliable source on Wikipedia. That's the first rule. The second rule is to read the full sentence. And when it's put together with treason and bribery, both of which are major affairs of state, it seems pretty clear that misdemeanor does not mean taking money out of the cash register. It must mean something closer to the others. We don't know exactly what, uh, but you can get a list of some fairly nasty offenses that you have suborning justice, taking, you know, I've already mentioned taking bribes and so forth, releasing information to other people. Um, it's a pretty tough standard that you want to have, and I think it's important that it be kept as a standard. The one thing that is very clear is that it doesn't cover uh, congenital incompetence in office or gross negligence by somebody who doesn't know what he's doing. For that, there is thought to be a political remedy. Uh, but as one says, as the re repetitions become more serious and the breaches of judgment become greater, it's going to be easier and easier for people to stitch the thing together and to say, somewhere in this morale, we are going to have a high crime and misdemeanor. And the other thing to remember about it is the initial state is not prosecution. It's just investigations, hearing, and so forth. Uh, they will not start in the House of Representatives. They'll start in the Washington Post, the New York Times, even in the Wall Street Journal, to mention only three very important papers in the United States. And I do think that the president is going to be on his heels. And I don't see any sense in him that he has to right himself. So there's nothing I can say that's going to stop this kind of conversation. 
separation from taking place. The only thing I wrote about, which got me into hot water, but I think it was correct, is that if you have the power to fire Comey within the statutory and constitutional framework, firing him is not going to be regarded as an impeachable offense because otherwise he has a lifetime contract. But that doesn't mean that these particular events are going to be treated in the same way. Uh, So hold on to your hat. And if you're going to make a judgment today, you have to remember you're going to have to revise it tomorrow. (laughs) Some of the initial reaction to the Russian intelligence disclosure story, especially the knee-jerk reaction from the president's most devoted critics, was focusing on the legality of disclosing the classified information. But the, the laws that apply to these disclosures are different for the president than they are for anyone else, aren't they? Explain how that works, Richard. Oh, if I knew precisely, I would be happy to give you an exact explanation. But I think generally speaking, the president as the chief executive officer is exempt from virtually every one of the standard rules that apply to people in the way in which they deal with classified information. So he's supposed to take care to see that the laws are faithfully executed, and that kind of gives him an unreviewable discretion vis-a-vis other branches of government. Or to put it in a slightly different fashion, uh, when you're talking about the president as an executive, the separation of powers arguments start to loom somewhat more powerfully. Obviously, they're not going to stop a subpoena of the tapes like you had in Watergate or something like that, but it is going to give him a very, very broad sphere of action. Uh, But that means, in effect, that the political checks now become all the more important because if you can't get him legally for the silly things that he's done, uh, you have to excoriate him politically, and that is what is going to happen in this particular case. I mean, what I want to say very clearly is I do not find it in myself to find a way to defend him with respect to the way in which he conducts the office. I think he has no idea of what he's doing, and I think a lot of what is really going on here is his utter lack of experience in diplomatic and political circles means that he still thinks he's running a talk show and he can tell people you're fired. But when you're president of the United States and you're dealing with senators, you're fired really doesn't do it. When you're dealing with federal judges, you're fired doesn't do it. And he can't seem to adjust himself to an event in which other people have protected positions from him. And so he just keeps on making mistakes of judgments, overreaches, and acts all in all as somebody who is really absolutely out of his depth. And so the incompetence charges, I think, are sticking. I can't think of anybody in either party who wants to say, ah, here is a diplomatic master at work. We should all seek to emulate his clever behavior. I think people really have exactly the opposite sense, and they're really quite dispirited about it on the Republican side. And the Democrats may be exultant, but my attitude is partisan. Sure, it's great for you, but this guy's got to lead the country and in the interim. And if he keeps making a mess of these things, um, it's not only the Israeli situation and the Russian situation that can unravel. We have complicated negotiations all over the globe. And it's not at all clear that Mattis um, and McMaster and Tillerson or whatever else you want to put into the mix can cover for him if he's the independent agent who can essentially undo all their good work with a single slip of the tongue. What about on the domestic side? I mean, a week ago, you and I were talking about Jim Comey being fired as the head of the FBI. Yesterday, everybody was talking about the Russia story. These are things that in a normal presidency would take up a news cycle of at least probably a month on their own. Today, this has been pushed off by yet another Comey story. I mean, what kind of effect does that sort of freneticism have 
on this administration's effectiveness, their ability to get anything done outside of these controversies? Well, I think it's, it has to be negative, and the only question is the extent. The, start with a couple of things. One is you'll never get any serious focus on legislation so long as everybody is up in pandemonium, and the Democrats now know that they could kick up a stink on all of this stuff uh, because their cases are, in fact, quite plausible. So they find it easier not to cooperate. The other thing, as best I can figure this out, is that the president has created a veto gate inside of his own administration, so even the executive stuff on the domestic front doesn't get done. Uh, All the stories seem to suggest that Steve Bannon is still very influential and that Jared Kushner is very influential and the two don't see eye to eye. Trump is not going to pick one or the other, and so unless he seems to get the approval of both of their various proxies, nothing gets done. And that probably accounts for one of the real weaknesses of his management style, which is he has not filled many of the key positions that he has inside of his administration. And that this is extremely costly because it means that uh, civil servants take over. Many of them are much more liberal than the president or have Obama holdover sympathies and so forth. So that the whole thing kind of uh, falls into a pattern of disarray and erratic behavior. Uh, What he really has to do is to focus on getting these key nominees through. And since he's so inept at the policy stuff that he's trying to do, what he has to do is become kind of a dignified function, welcome diplomats and some highfalutin pros, but not get himself involved in the technical work. I want to stress, by the way, many of the people that I know on the legal staff are absolutely positively first rate. So it's not a question of them not having talent there or being unable to hire talent. I think there are many, many able people who will go into the administration. But what you have to do is to pick up the pace uh, so that you can start to make initiatives and key executive appointments in the administrative side and get some legislative moving movement. The stuff on the health care bill, which I wrote about this week uh, today on the Hoover side, it's a bad mishmash again because they seem to think that they can undo everything, whereas once you embed subsidies, it's extremely difficult to get them out, and the administration, as far as I can see, and the Republicans in the Congress have not struck with any kind of proposal that's going to get a lot of public support. I think the support for the repeal and replace bill that's now on the floor is about 17% nationwide. That's not going to do it. You don't want to pass legislation that's that poor. But you'll never get people to focus on this stuff unless you have a coherent administration and some strong committee work in the Congress and also get some decent outside advisors who can start to tell you how it is that you try to reconstruct the system which was badly broken by the Obama initiatives. Final question that I'll ask you. As any of our regular listeners know, you've been skeptical of Trump since back when he was a candidate. Uh, They also know probably that you called on him to resign (laughs) pretty early in his presidency. He's been in office now – just under four months. Based on what you've seen, not what you not what you'd wish, but what you've seen, what's the best case scenario you can hope for in terms of how he conducts himself in office? What's the best possible outcome that actually strikes you as achievable for him? What happens is he has to let other people rein him in so that he doesn't go off half-cocked. He must learn to delegate to good people and to either sit silent in the room or get out of the room. What he has to do is to understand the limits of his own ability to make the technical stuff and to give more delegation than would normally be desirable. The basic problem is 
is this. He does not come in with a set of skills that is necessary to be president of the United States, given the fact that he's never had an elective office, has never worked in the military, has never worked in a business where somebody didn't bend to his will. And he has to essentially change his entire mindset uh, to be deferring to other people. The illustration of where he did this well was Neil Gorsuch, where he deferred to Leonard Leo. He has to find a dozen Leonard Leos and defer to all of them and spend his time not making difficulties for his administration. I have no question uh, that if people thought that he was going to be a non-negative factor in the operation of his office, people would flock to work in this administration because there's so much that needs to be undone uh, from the Obama administration and so many capable people for doing it that I think they would regard it as an opportunity of a lifetime to figure out how you could have a greater assertion of American authority overseas, more levels of deregulation at home, rationalization of the um, tax code, and sort of quieting all the culture wars which have heated up on campus in a very indefensible way. So there are many things that can be done, uh, but he's just not the person to do it. So what he has to do is to sprinkle holy water on other people and let them carry out the actual tasks. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column. It's called The Libertarian, and it's available by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.